Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin, creator of MediaRoots.org. This is your co-host, Robbie Martin. Welcome to episode four of Media Roots. We're going to start off today's show by talking about a couple headlines that have been in the news recently, one of which a really disturbing story about an eight-month pregnant woman, Chinese woman, who was dragged out of her home and forced, basically forced to uh, have an abortion by the Chinese government for violating the one-child policy law. Eight months pregnant, dragged, kicking and screaming out of her home. Twelve government officials entered her house, took her to the hospital, and restrained her as doctors injected her with a drug to kill her unborn baby. Um, They claim that her husband signed off on it, and he says that that's a complete lie. So it's it's just really, really disturbing that this is going on in China. Totally closed off society. No, you know, there's so much censorship. We don't really know what's going on over there. We know that there's a lot of disturbing stuff about organ, um, you know, selling organs on the black market and the Falun Gong practitioners. And it's just, it's just really, really shocking stuff. Yeah. China is, is pretty creepy in a lot of ways. Uh, <laughs> the, the organ harvesting, that the fact that they, you know, they, they so efficiently execute you after you, you know, you're charged, you know, you know, the judge makes your sentence death. You basically get executed like within hours after that really? verdict. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. rumors that they have what's called mobile execution vans where they are basically parked outside the courthouse and you go inside them and they harvest your organs after they <laughs> give you lethal injection in the van. Um, I don't, I don't know of the validity of that. I mean, I've heard that many years, but I don't know if that's entirely true, but you know, there's a lot of scary stories. Um, that's nice. That's nice <laughs> that this country owns our currency. And we yeah. buy all of our product from China and they're the, the most totalitarian, psychotic regimes ever. Well, not yeah. ever. Well, but. they're really efficient. <laughs> but the, but uh, back to the, the one child policy thing, um, I was reading, I, I don't know if it was that story that you read that from, but, but if you're, if you're up in the, you know, elite middle class of China, you make a good amount of income. The fine for having a second child is 40,000 pounds in China. So if you're rich enough to afford that, you can pay the fine and the Chinese government will allow you to have a child. So basically it's kind of like a Darwinism thing. It's like they don't, there's a reason why they have a one child policy, you know, from their perspective, they're accelerating at such a ridiculous rate that if they didn't have a one child policy, the country would have, you know, over 2 billion people or something, Mm. but they're obviously, you know, they're allowing rich people to have a second child and they don't want poor people to. That's disgusting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a Darwinist, social Darwinist policy for sure. That's, that's really, really disconcerting. And I, I remember watching that movie, Invisible Landscapes. Um, it's a movie about a photographer who just mm-hmm. goes to China and, and other countries and, and just takes crazy yeah. pictures. of These just epically large, you know, coal mine mm-hmm. where it just endless, you know, as far as the eye can see, billowing clouds, you know, coming up from these, this coal mine operation. And in the movie, they talk about how it's a regular occurrence for China to basically move into these tribal areas. You know, if they want to open up a new dam or a new coal mm-hmm. mine, the government will basically give people in an entire town, like a 30 day notice and say, you have to leave within this amount of time. And they'll literally, if someone doesn't leave, you know, like, you know, like the, the, you know, the grumpy old man who doesn't want to leave his house, you know, will stay there and, you know, keep the construction 
equipment out. In China, they just bulldoze over the house if someone's yeah. in it. There's been several instances where, you know, there's no the, em, there's no eminent domain there. I no. mean, it's just just bulldozing over people's property. No, I mean they'll you, they'll bulldoze over, over your home. You know, if you're an 80 year old woman in there, they'll just bulldoze you right over and bury you under the the earth. Reminds me of that story of the Israeli tank that bulldozed over that uh, that white girl who was protesting. Oh yeah, but they did it by accident. Remember all her friends switched their story later yeah, and said, "Oh, that that was an understandable accident." Oh, I wonder how much tragic, money they got. Tragic hush story. Money yeah, there. they got a lot of hush money. Speaking of totalitarian regimes that have no regard for human rights or human life, in February of this year, a Pakistani mother of three, a cognitive neuroscientist from MIT, Afia Siddiqui, was convicted in a U.S. federal court of attempted murder of an American, and she was sentenced to 86 years in prison. The story goes like this. So Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, you know, we all know who this, the supposed mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. He's the guy that you always see the picture, the disheveled <laughs> picture of him wearing a wife beater, like looking at the side, like he looks like an Italian, like grandpa. Yeah, he's yeah, like drunk. Yeah. And every picture, it's like the only picture well, you've like ever probably seen. Probably right after he was waterboarded. They probably just like took a photo of him. <laughs> And just like plastered all over the media, but okay, say cheese. We just waterboarded you. Yeah, we just waterboarded you for the 183rd time. Cheese. No, so so Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and there's a lot of questions about about him and the validity of him actually being the mastermind of the 9/11 attacks. But he was being held in captivity. He was waterboarded 183 times in one month. That is more than five times a day. I mean, that is ludicrous thinking that we waterboarded this guy so hard for so long and he apparently gave up dr siddiqui's name as a member of al-qaeda uh so you know after you're tortured and waterboarded five times a day for a week maybe you just start throwing out names yeah, I mean, basically waterboarding brings you to a psychological near-death experience where yeah. every time you're waterboarded, you, you your body gives a fight or flight instinct reaction where you think you're dying every time. I would say that I was the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. If I was being waterboarded, I'd just say, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. It's To me, it, it's the equivalent type of intelligence gathering is is like, um you know, in black magic rituals when you throw down a, a bag of sticks on the mm-hmm. ground and try to figure out what it means. Yeah. It's it's the same level of idiocy. It is. It's so <laughs> barbarically ridiculous. Um, so Dr. Siddiqui and her three children subsequently disappeared for five years from 2003 to 2008 after Khalid Sheikh Muhammad gave up her name. Um, she resurfaced in Ghazni, Afghanistan, and she claimed that for the years that she was missing, she was held in various Pakistani and U.S. prisons, tortured and repeatedly raped. Uh, many prisoners maintain that she was incarcerated at Bagram Air Base, which we talked about um, a couple episodes ago, and she was tortured for, you know, consecutively for for the five years that she was missing. And then the story goes like this. This is why, apparently, according to Americans, why she was sentenced to 86 years in prison. After all of this happened, she was finally taken to an Afghanistan prison, and Americans claim that she got up grabbed a rifle and started shouting that she was going to kill Americans and fired the rifle twice, missing everyone in the room. Oddly enough, no bullets were recovered from the room. No fingerprints were on, on the rifle that they claimed that she picked up. You know, in self-defense, the American shot her twice in the stomach. Basically, she's going to spend her life in prison. All arbitrary. It just reminds me of the Pat Tillman, Jessica Lynch thing. It's just all propaganda. It's just, you know, covering all bases. Americans shot her. She claims that... After she was arrested and beaten again, she fell asleep on a bed, got up all discombobulated, and someone said, oh, no, she's loose, and shot her twice in the stomach. 
Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, you know, you know, was, you know, tortured and said her name. It's like all that stuff to me, it just seems completely false. It's yeah, like, the fact it's totally was, untrustworthy. She was incarcerated, raped repeatedly. Her whole life is destroyed because Khalid Sheikh Muhammad said a name while he was tortured over and over again. Do we even know that this woman is the only Afia Sadiqi in the world? I mean, it's just completely outlandish that this is happening. It's totally underreported, mostly underreported by the mainstream media. Al Jazeera just did a piece on this where Cindy Sheehan wrote an article about it, which is how I found out about it. But it's just it's just unbelievable to me that this is happening. This woman is just, you know, her life is over. It's like the Bradley Manning thing. Just based on intelligence, you know, that we, we don't know, we don't, we can never know because it's just under the guise of national security and she's just locked up now and it's just, let's move on. Yeah. I mean, to be, let's, let's think about it, you know, realistically here. She, I've seen pictures of her. She looks like a very small. Yeah. She's five, two or something. How could she have, how could she have gotten access to a rifle? Yeah. You know, during these military interrogations, you know, wherever this (laughs) happened. It just, the whole story just seems ludicrous. It is. It's really sad. And it's, it's like, really, really you know, sad. if you've raped a woman in a prison camp, you know, it's like, you're going to make up anything about her to, you know, keep her in jail. Yeah. You know, you don't want her going on the meet on 60 minutes. You don't want to admit that you accidentally shot her for no reason after you raped her and tortured her for five years. Yeah. I mean, they've beaten people to death in Guantanamo, yeah. um, you know, like this, this new WikiLeaks report shows is that the, um, you know, the Iraqi guards in, you know, Iraq that we were supposedly handing off the government to or about to or whatever, you know, they killed people in prison all the time. Mm-hmm. It was a regular thing. And the U.S. look the other way. And I heard this hilarious neocon apologist idiot basically saying, well, you know, Iraq was a sovereign state during that time. So we didn't have the right to tell them, tell the prisoner, you know, tell the guards how to treat their prisoners. It wasn't, it wasn't our legal right to do that. It's like, excuse me, you (laughs) occupied a country, you've taken it over and you can't, it's like, come on, man. Like, that's not going to work. No one's going to believe that. The cognitive dissonance level is hilarious with some of these people. Uh, Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, And, and moving on, you know, Prop 19, I don't know if it's going to pass or not. That's really, it's a really interesting case. I've heard a lot of pros and cons against and for Prop 19. That's the legalization and, and taxation of marijuana in the state of California. Eric Holder just came out and said that the federal government will continue to enforce the laws. They'll continue to raid cannabis clubs. They'll continue to raid people's homes, even if Prop 19 passes. Yeah, we really don't know. Eric Holder has been so wishy-washy and said so many contradictory things that, I mean, is he saying, is he making this threat so that people won't want to vote for it? Yeah. I mean, it's, is, is the DA really going to have resources to raid people um, like they used to? Uh, it's, it's, it's just Eric Holder's policies have been ridiculously <laughs> all over the map. I mean, originally I remember him when Obama got into office, it was like, we will not raid any medical marijuana people at all mm-hmm. like anybody who needs medicine oh yeah i remember them saying you know, that. it was like we're, we're not gonna raid it I that was like one of the main things that was gonna change yeah. wasn't it the federal government was just gonna be like okay like, yeah we're gonna let you guys do that i remember um you know they they had stickers at some of these cannabis activist places they had stickers that said obama supports medical marijuana and it would show a picture of obama's face it's like yay you know obama's gonna he's the greatest person ever you know he he (laughs) accepts everything he's so progressive and then they just started raiding the crap out of people as soon as he got into office it was like i'm on this alert list where basically i get a message Mm -hmm. in my mailbox every time a place is raided like the instant it's raided somebody will email yeah you know this whole mailing list and 
there were at least 40 raids in mm-hmm. California. There was just one. In, there was just one in San Diego about a couple of days ago. Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, the justice department, they'll act like they weren't going against their word by saying, well, these people weren't merely raided because of, um, they were doing medical marijuana. There were other illegal activities taking place. It's just fear mongering, scare tactics, you know, just keeping people under their thumb saying that we can do this at any time. Yeah. And then I, I basically, f- I found out through talking to some of these people who, you know, run cannabis clubs and stuff that what the situation is now is that the government is acting like they're not going to raid medical marijuana places just seem more like, you know, conscious and more like, you know, progressive yeah. minded. But in fact, they're putting your business under the finest tooth comb possible to find out if you're doing mm-hmm. anything wrong at mm-hmm. all. If you've made any missteps, if you haven't jumped through every single hoop, then they're going to get you. They don't scrutinize other businesses like that. They're clearly, the DEA is, is clearly PO'd still about what California is doing. Oh, absolutely. They're not going to all of a sudden be happy and be like, oh, great. We don't have to raid metal, you know, marijuana anymore. They're going to be extremely infuriated. Yeah. I mean, it's a really radical piece of legislation and I just can't help but think what is going to happen if it does get passed. You know, are people going to come in and try to patent hemp seeds and, and all that stuff? I mean, is Monsanto going to start patenting hemp and, uh, it's just interesting. Our big tobacco corporation is going to come in and try to patent Definitely. the first marijuana cigarette. Well, and- geez, I mean, RJ Reynolds, these tobacco companies, they obviously have rooms, you know, secret layers inside where it's like people have made mock-up drawings of like Absolutely. camel cigarette spliffs, yeah. you know, with uh, Joe Camel smoking a big joint on the cover. Like, yeah. you know, those things have been like brainstormed. <laughs> <laughs> So I just thought of another funny piece of Obama propaganda when uh, you and I were in Rebecca Kaplan's office. She's a Democratic candidate running for Oakland mayor. And we were just in there to check it out. And I saw this piece of propaganda literature from the Democratic Party on the table. So I picked it up and it just had Obama's smiling face with a thumbs up. And inside there was a big bar graph chart that showed the unemployment rates rising, skyrocketing during the Bush administration. It had just a red, and it was funny because it was all red, like the Republican <laughs> color. It was like this bar graph showing the unemployment rates rising and peaking. And then it just showed an inverse bar graph of unemployment <laughs> rates going down to like zero. Like, And it just said, like, look at this is what we've done. And it was like a blue inverse graph, bar graph showing under Obama, the unemployment rates are like back to normal. You're like, what? How is this possible? It's like the biggest piece of propaganda I've ever seen. It's like based on nothing. I mean, where are they even getting these statistics from? If, if the unemployment rates have dropped at all, it's because people are moonlighting, picking up extra shifts. My friend Jeff, he just applied for a city position. He's been, he has a graduate degree from UCSD in city planning, went for a, a position. He's been working for free for the city of LA for eight months. He went there. He said that there were 80 other applicants. Some were 60 years old filling out applications for this position. It just shows you how horrible the situation is and how underreported the unemployment rates really are. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. I haven't actually seen any of the Obama midterm propaganda. I would love to, to pick up some pamphlets or something about that yeah it's really interesting it's just it's just funny that he's like even trying to say that it's better now i don't understand i mean haven't we can't we just admit that stuff is really really bad has not gotten better at all back to prop 19 um i I heard an interesting perspective from someone who was writing just about the, the way the state bureaucracy works and the dea is has a close relationship with the state of California law enforcement in the state of California frequently works with the DEA. They have branches in California. So just think of the political reasons 
just aside from, you know, marijuana, mm -hmm. you know, they don't like marijuana. They think yeah. it's bad. Just aside from that, like they're, you know, what are they going to do? What is a DA office in California going to do? Yeah. I mean, obviously their main revenue, their and, main revenue <laughs> is weed. Yeah. I mean, California is the largest exporter of marijuana in the United States. That's what I was thinking too. It's like, how is the federal government going to allow this? Because they rake in so much money and think about the incarceration rates of people who are just low level marijuana dealers. Yeah, 50% of all drug arrests are marijuana. So, I mean, they're going to lose a ton of money from fines, people being arrested with barely anything, less than a gram, and they still, you know, they have to pay extraordinary fines. Yeah, but at the same time where people are saying, you know, California's struggling, they need all this money and whatnot, at the same time, the DEA is going to be losing money if it passes because yeah. they make so much money in raiding people and just totally wiping out their bank accounts That'd be interesting and freezing to see, all their assets. That would be interesting to see a projected cost benefit analysis in terms of like what the DEA would lose financially in terms of like what California would make if, if it was taxed and legalized. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, if the D like, is the DEA going to raid like an RJ Reynolds marijuana growing warehouse <laughs> no. or are they going to raid like some crazy hippie guy in, in Humboldt that yeah. has his own weed garden? We wanted to segue also, we have the tea party candidates who are running on, uh, really they just tout the constitution all the time. Well, let's bring it back to the constitution. You saw the, the Glenn Beck rally of the 200,000 people, all of them were interviewed and they didn't know anything about the constitution yet. They kept saying, we need to go back to what our founding fathers wanted. No one has any, like, no one even knows what, what the constitution is or what it says. It's just like, if you're going to go out and like make your whole political platform on constitutional liberty and, and what the fundamentals of the constitution are, don't you think you should school yourself on it at least? Yeah. At least Ron Paul is like a freaking expert yeah. in the constitution. And it's funny that all these other people are now trying to copy yeah. him and be like, I'm kind of constitutionalist. It's like, no, you're not man. Yeah. Like Christine O'Donnell. You don't understand the constitution at all. It, which is perfect for this woman, Christine O'Donnell. She's running for the Senate in Delaware. The most hilarious debate ever. Other than the Jan Brewer thing. I've never seen anything so outrageous. You know, I feel Neither really dumb because I had I I didn't know until you just said that that she was running as a senator. That's even more crazy. <laughs> I could see I could see someone like that thinking they have a chance at the house, but I cannot believe she's actually running yeah. for Senate. So Christine O'Donnell, you know, she's running for the Senate in Delaware. She was sitting there at a debate against her her opponent. And not only could she not name a senator who was who's a re, you know a Republican active senator in the Senate, she also didn't know anything about the Constitution at all. Someone from the audience asked her if she would be interested in repealing the 14th, 16th, or 17th Amendments. Uh, the 14th Amendment grants citizenship to every individual born in the United States. The 16th Amendment created the federal income tax. And the 17th Amendment is the provision that calls for direct election of U.S. senators. Uh, so O'Donnell said, you know, she supported the 17th Amendment, but then she said, you know, I didn't bring my constitution today, so you're going to have to remind me what the what those other two ones are. And it's like, Okay, that's fine that you didn't bring your constitution, but don't say that you're like that you're running on the platform of being a constitutionalist. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it wouldn't be fair to bash someone who doesn't claim that they know yeah. about the constitution for not knowing it. <laughs> but if you claim you know about it, then you deserve to get criticized. And also, the, I mean, the 14th Amendment is something that the Tea Party candidates tout a lot because it's a citizenship issue. It's all about illegal immigration. It's like, should we be granting these people who yeah. are born in the United States citizenship? I mean, that's something that and the guy in the audience is just like, come on, you should know this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and then this is the most shocking part. She didn't know that there was a separation of church and state in the First Amendment. Her opponent saying, you know, she was saying that that basically school boards should decide if they should 
teach creationism in schools. And her opponent was just like, well, no, like we can't teach creationism in schools. He's like, I'm a creationist, but we have to teach science. We can't teach kids religious doctrine. And she just said, well, where, you know, why? And he was just like, well, it's laid out in the constitution. It's laid out in the first amendment that we can't. She's like, wait, where is it in the constitution that says we can't have, we have to have a separation of church and state. She's like, really? That's in the constitution. Everyone's like, what? The whole audience. We should play that clip right now so people yeah, can just yeah. hear the absurdity. Okay, yeah, let's roll the clip of her not knowing anything about the Constitution. Then answer the question, do you believe in evolution? What I think about the theory of evolution is irrelevant because I will defend... Again, you're local... dodging the simple question. What, what is, is a my... settled scientific Now listen, fact. let me ask you, what is the relevance on that other than campaigning on Sunday mornings, which you tend to do, going to the churches and, you know, do you disagree with the positions that those several churches uh, that you've been attending? I mean, are, are I you going to tell them that you're going to show up just to get their vote? The absolute right. To believe whatever religious doctrine they wish, and do local schools have the right to teach the te- that? They do not. Public local schools, schools do not have the right to not. teach what they feel. Well, there you go. Religious do you want a senator who's going to impose his schools. beliefs? Talk about imposing your beliefs on the local schools. Where in the Constitution is separation of church and state? It's in. No, an excellent point. Hold on, hold on, please, please. I also think you've just heard in the answers from my opponent and in her attempt at saying, where is the separation of church and state in the Constitution, reveals her fundamental misunderstanding of what our Constitution is, how it is amended, and how it evolves. The First Amendment, the First Amendment, establishes the separation, the fact that the federal government shall not establish any religion, and decisional law by the Supreme Court over many, many decades. The First Amendment does? clarifies and enshrines that there is a separation of church and state that our courts and our laws must respect. So you're back telling the me that the separation Wade, of church and state, the phrase the separation Wade, of church and state is found in the Roe First Amendment? Wade. You're telling Go me ahead. that the separation of church and state is found in the First Amendment? Government shall make no establishment of religion. That's in the First Amendment.
the best part about that clip is it's it, it totally illustrates you know how powerful cognitive dissonance is another word for what she's experiencing could be called epistemic closure she kind of laughs when Kuhn says well yeah actually the government shall make no establishment of religion he says that to her and she kind of looks at the audience like and they all like laugh coyly she's just yeah, like they all laugh and she thinks they're laughing yeah, with her yeah. like she thinks she just like scored huge points mm-hmm. over him and and she kind of smiles but they're clearly laughing at her yeah. ignorance. They're just like, they're shocked. Yeah. They're just like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, the 14th, 16th, and 17th Amendment maybe let that slide, even though no, because she runs her platform on it. But I mean, the First Amendment, are you out of your mind? Yeah. I mean, at least know, at least, you know, have the skill set <laughs> ready to debate about that. I mean, if you don't believe that the, that the founders in, intended, you know, separation of church and state, then have some sort of argument ready. Yeah. But it's like she had nothing. She just like, she denied the existence of it at first, that it was in the First Amendment. And then when he told her what the First Amendment meant, she acted like it didn't say what it said. Yeah. Her campaign manager came out later and she was just like, she didn't mean that it wasn't in it. She just said that what he, what Kuhn said wasn't in it. Like she said that the words free, you know, separation of church and state isn't in the constitution. Yeah, it's like, li- oh, literally, really? Yeah. The, the, like, um, like if you can't paraphrase something like it, it's because it paraphrases, it's not, it's not acceptable. It has to literally say that in it. Yeah. You can't be smart enough to paraphrase. It just, oh my God. <laughs> and I'm going to borrow a term from Alex Jones here that um, I think is a more understandable way to explain cognitive dissonance is she is performing mental gymnastics as she tries to do the debate. And she just, you could just watch her mind like, you know, like some cartoonish machine with the gears sputtering and bolts flying out. I mean, she, it's like she doesn't even, it's pretty astounding. I mean, it yeah, is. besides Jan Brewer, I've, you know, it's, to see someone on this level, it's, it is still shocking in this day and age. And it's funny. I mean, you were saying this earlier, but it's, if aliens came to this country or just the planet right now and they looked at America, they would think that this woman being propped up by the media and having this played over and over again would be like the most important person. Yeah. Like if an alien came, they would think that, she, that Christine O'Donnell was like the president of earth or something. She, she's, <laughs> she's giving more media coverage than any single politician or anybody. The whole notion of, of separation in church and state that, that people who are evangelical and um, a lot of these tea partiers try to, try to portray is a re is history revisionism. It's, it's the same kind of history revisionism that happens on the other side of the debate when atheists, generic liberals will say that the founders didn't intend any sort of spiritual anything in the, in the constitution mm-hmm. or that they, you know, it was religion was completely separate from it. Not that, not that religion, it's not that the founders, were trying to instill Christianity into the constitution. They clearly, I mean, the first amendment clearly lays out that the government shall not prop up a religion or promote it. Um, and that's not because they were atheists. It's not because they were deists, which a lot of them were, you know, like Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, deism means that you respect the spiritualism behind Christianity, but you're more of an intellectual, um, observer of the Christian morals and teachings. Like you, you respect, you know, you, you take the value in what Jesus is saying, but you don't actually take it literally like it actually happened. Um, but the real truth behind America's linkage with spiritualism and religion is that America's foundation was based on a Freemasonic belief system. 
and it's not in the conspiratorial way that a lot of people like to try to say that the you know that there was some sort of satanist you know <laughs> influence on the founders or anything like that freemasonry is basically a huge aspect of the founding of our country that we rarely ever hear about in a in a realistic and historical context if you read anything about the you know the masonic belief system it's very easy to understand how our country became secularized and why that wording is so specific in the constitution. Some, yeah, some of the founding fathers were deists like Thomas Jefferson. They, they write about, um, you know, Jesus and his certain writings of his, but at the same time they talk about how that's not, you know, it's not factual. Yeah. It's but, more allegorical. They're not yeah. saying that it's actually true. And deism and Freemasonry are very compatible belief systems because in Freemasonry, you're supposed to respect any school of religion, mm-hmm. which an evangelical or extreme Christian wouldn't be able to do. They mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to, to look at a Muslim and say... Hence the mosque situation we have right now. Yeah, exactly. Evangelical Christians of today, they say, well, here's all these writings of Jefferson and, mm-hmm. and all these people talking about God. There was a lot of talk about God back then, but we have to look at it from the perspective that they had back then. Freemasons believe in God. All of them do. Mm-hmm. But you can be of any religion. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we kind of just wanted to talk about the foundation of our country and, and how the Freemasons pay, played a giant role in that and kind of what just the history of the Freemasons and clearing up some of the perspectives on, on who the Freemasons are. You know, I, for the longest time, I was I was kind of obsessed with becoming a Mason just to see, you know, just to like infiltrate it from the inside and, you know, learn all the secrets and all that stuff. But, you know, in researching the Freemasons, the most interesting aspect for me is the completely brushed under the rug alternate American history. Mm -hmm. You know, the Revolutionary War period, Ben Franklin, Mm -hmm. George Washington, you know, in all the history books, even on John Adams, you know, I really liked the HBO miniseries, John Adams. It was one of the best like historical, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, dramatizations I've ever seen, but there was a definite lack, omission, <laughs> omission of the Freemasonic influence that was obvious in the American mm-hmm. Revolution. I mean, most of the founding fathers were Masons. Almost all of them were. And uh, here, I'm going to read a little list for you of people, um, principal movers of the revolution who were Freemasons. Um, there's a website I'm looking at here that has the 20 greatest names of the American Revolution. Um, John Adams, who spoke favorably of Freemasonry, he never joined. Here's a list of other founding fathers who were Freemasons. Uh, Samuel Adams, Ethan Allen, Edmund Burke, John Claypool, William Davis, Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, Thomas Jefferson, John Paul Jones, Robert Livingston, Paul Revere, George Washington, um, of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, 15 of the 56 signers were Freemasons. Um, it's uh, On this webpage, it says, quote, it's true that this represents only 25 percent uh, that this represents only 27% of the total signers, but this 27% includes the principal movers of the revolution, most notably Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And uh, of the signers of the Constitution, 28 of 40 signers were Freemasons. You know, we have a little link to a video here, which basically shows uh, how many Masons were signers of the Constitution, how many generals of Washington were Freemasons. Pretty much over half of Washington's generals were Freemasons. Mm. Freemasonry 
was a proto intelligence network. It was it was a means for people to spread information secretly, and they knew that that information could also be spread to you know a lodge in another state. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the steampunk CIA. <laughs> <laughs> So, so could that have been a reason why, why they were able to galvanize the revolution because they were kind of this proto-intelligence network? Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's definitely a, a large unspoken aspect of it, that not only were they able to do things behind the scenes and pull strings and things like that, Ben Franklin owned several newspapers, you know, just to go along with the way the media works today. Back then, uh, you know, Ben Franklin was instructing writers to write fake stories about British soldiers raping and and killing women and Mm -hmm. children um, in the colonies uh, to drum up kind of anti-British sentiment. They obviously wanted to trump up the propaganda hard. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a legitimate reason to separate. However, there were a lot of distortions of the truth used to try to go towards that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, the Boston Tea Party is a hilarious example of, of a kind of a staged event. The way you read about the Boston Tea Party in the history books is that it was just this organic uprising, you know, by the people that, you know, they, they got on the ship and they, you know, they dressed mm-hmm. as Native Americans and threw all the tea off. When in fact, it was a staged incident. The inception of the idea was formed at the Green Dragon Tavern, um, which is also known as the headquarters of the revolution. Um, which people like Paul Revere met at um, with other, you know, revolutionaries to plan the um, overthrow. Um, Another nickname for the Green Dragon Tavern is the Freemason's Arms. The Boston Tea Party was planned there in, um, in April, and it eventually happened on April 22nd, 1774. I wanted to just discuss really quickly, basically the religious beliefs behind the Freemasons, Mm -hmm. because we started this discussion talking about the separation of church and state and what the founders intentions were in doing that. The Freemasonic belief system is that you must believe in a God um, to be a member of the Freemasons. You must have some sort of spiritual belief in God, but you can be of any practicing religion. It doesn't matter. Sounds like AA. (laughs) Yeah. But this heavily influenced in what is now, you know, secular American society. The Freemasons were one of the largest organizations to push, you know, secularism in America. Were the, was that the first occurrence that Freemasons were really behind a political move like that? Yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of rumors going back further than that. Um, a lot of people say that the Masons, that early, in, you know, versions of the Freemasons helped s- start the catalyst for the French Revolution. Mm-hmm a lot of that stuff is not documented very heavily. Things that aren't really verifiable. Like the idea, the Masons themselves say that they come from a guild of stoneworking Masons that helped construct King Solomon's temple in biblical times. Mm-hmm. They, they like to, they think very highly of themselves and they have this, <laughs> they have this, you know. So they think that their lineage goes right back to the Bible. I absolutely. Mean, yeah. Yeah. There's one of the Masonic code words is, is Tubal Cain. Uh, it's a character in the Bible, a very obscure character in the Bible that was a stoneworker. So it's kind of like them trying to link themselves. There's a character in the Bible who was like a Mason. Seems basically. like they're grasping at straws a little bit there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the alternate alternate history though? You said that there's a kind of a verifiable. Well, that's that's the unverified mm-hmm. history. That's probably not true. Um, you know, there was masonry around in the 1600s. Um, you know, there was talk of of Freemasons meeting. Um, it was it was it was known. It was publicly known about. Um, and then the 1700s. The first known um, recorded Masonic Lodge in the United States was in Boston, um, St. John's Meeting at Tun Tavern. 
It was constituted July 30th, 1733. We're talking about the formation of this country and the first third party that ever existed in America was the anti-Masonic party, which is really on kind of an underreported thing. I mean, I never learned about that in history. Yeah, you would think that would be an important history lesson, you know, to learn about the first entry of a political party opposite from the Republican and Democrats in American politics, not talked about at all. Um, The reason the anti-Masonic party was formed in the first place is because on September 11th of 1826, William Morgan was excommunicated from the Bativia Lodge, um, Freemasonic Lodge. This is in in the United States. Mm -hmm. He angrily released a press release or, or he talked to some reporters about how he was going to write an expose book revealing all Masonic secrets. The book was not even published at this point. Uh, Masons were so angered by what William Morgan said he was going to do that the paper that was going to publish part of this book, um, a group of Masons came to that paper in the middle of the night and tried to set fire to it. The paper like somehow fought back against them and they weren't, they didn't set fire to the place. So, Sounds like a covert op the CIA would do nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Operation dark heart. <laughs> so, so they tried to burn the book. Um, didn't work. Got a judge to put William Morgan in debtor's prison. Wow. They, they claimed that he owed money on the house. So when he was in jail, um, the newspaper that was going to publish his Masonic expose came up with the money to pay the debt for him. They went to wow. the jail. Um, after several failed attempts, he finally secured Morgan's release. So he was like, okay, you know, I got my, the guy out of jail, you know, this is good. Um, but in the middle of the night, um, this is on public record. William Morgan was kidnapped, um, by up to three Masons out of the jail. The, you know, the people operating the jail were obviously friends with, mm-hmm. or, you know, They're associated the with the Masons. Club. They just let him by. And, you know, a similar vein to how Jack Ruby was able to enter the police station mm-hmm. when, when Oswald was walking through. You know, how did that happen? It's kind of a similar thing. So they, these Masons kidnapped him. They took him to, you know, near the Canadian border and they drowned him in a river. And later the three Masons were charged in a court of kidnapping charges. They served prison time, um, but they were never charged with his murder. There's a lot of attempts on both sides, like the Masonic side and the anti-Masonic side to kind of try to spin this story, even for the time. A lot of people tried to say William Morgan was so in debt that he escaped to Canada, you know, so that his name wouldn't be besmirched anymore. And then he could just live in, you know, a double well, life. Then why did they get convicted for kidnapping? Well, yeah, they, they did kidnap him. That's the thing. Yeah. They did. The Masons try to say that they didn't kill him. <laughs> um, the problem is a body washed up to shore that was actually buried as William Morgan in Canada. They, they grave is marked as him. You know, a mortician at the time, you know, deemed it likely that he had died. So, so people, so Masons now trying to say that he wasn't killed, um, you know, they're trying to downplay it, but I've actually, it's funny. I've talked to Masons. I've gone into some lodges and asked them about the William Morgan affair is what they call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of Masons are just like, oh yeah, they probably killed them. You know, they probably did. They did a lot of bad stuff back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so this yeah, guy, I mean, he, he had secrets to tell. Yeah. And probably, I mean, probably he didn't even really have any, it was more like the Masons just wanted to you know, control it, control like show their on. power. Yeah. Show their power. Like what secrets could he have leaked? That would have been that devastating. Yeah. And actually his book was released later and the secrets in it weren't that revelatory. They were just kind of, you know, here's their handshakes. This is their code words. This is what mm-hmm. they do inside the lodge meetings. So whatever happened with John Quincy Adams? I mean, he pioneered the anti-Masonic party kind of in defiance of his father and all of his father's colleagues in a way. I mean, 
you know, here, here his father, John Adams, helped frame the Constitution, and here his son is basically fighting that whole establishment. Yeah. What I'm, happened to the anti-Masonic party? Well, the, the way the anti-Masonic party was formed, I forgot to mention a key component to this is William Morgan's disappearance and the minimal punishment received by the kidnappers. The fact that they did not get charged with murder and they were let off pretty fast out of jail. Um, a series of protests spread all throughout New York and neighboring States. Uh, the protests were, at Masonic lodges, they would go to the Masonic lodge and protest at the lodge. Um, they would protest, you know, famous Masons places of residence. So it was, it was a grassroots anti-Masonic movement that was forming. Uh, it started a firestorm mm. when he was murdered. A New York politician named Thurlow Weed. Um, he was an anti Andrew Jackson politician. He formed the anti-Masonic party. It was a reaction to this perception that society had that the Masons were secretive. They were holding masonry and other Masons above the law, just like this, you know, that the kidnappers got let just off. Just like England was doing. I mean, it's kind of, they were. Yeah. Or just like any other, you know, elite society. It's like, um, you know, Johannes Meserly, you mm-hmm. know, he would have gotten murder charges if he wasn't a cop. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, cops get, but as far as masonry goes, if you were a judge back in, during the 1800s and you were a Mason and the, and the person you see in front of you, you know, if he's a Mason, You'll be more likely to let them yeah, go. Yeah, a little bit more lenient. Yeah. So uh, that was just kind of a defiance of that whole system and that, that rule of law kind of holding people above the law. And that's really why the anti-Masonic party came into fruition. Yeah. And there was another component to the anti-Masonic party s- starting is that Andrew Jackson um, was a Mason. So Andrew Jackson is, is one of those presidents that's touted by a lot of people as being you know, this awesome, um, you know, rebellious president, you know, he was one of the, you know, most rebellious and against the system presidents we've had. But back then a third party was formed to run against him because he was a Mason and people perceived him as being part of the problem, part of the corruption in America as part of this elite society that ruled all. Look up Andrew Jackson during the anti-Masonic party's rise. John Quincy Adams was not actually in the anti-Masonic party, but the ideals of the anti-Masonic party were so influential that running against Andrew Jackson started to adopt some of the kind of anti-Masonic rhetoric. John Quincy Adams more was inspired by the anti-Masonic party. Okay. The anti-Masonic party was started by Thurlow Weed. Okay. Um, but uh, John Quincy Adams wrote a very important book. That's it's one of the only books critical of Freemasonry from before 1900. In 1847, he wrote a book titled Letters on the Masonic Institution, and it was basically just like a long critique on why the Masonic Institution is bad for mm-hmm. society. Um, John Quincy Adams. Um, is is probably most known for uh, his involvement in in the defense of a of a slave coming back on a slave ship who was said to have rebelled and well the movie Amistad was based on this story yeah the movie Amistad was based on John Quincy Adams defending the slave in court so so later he he was one of the the big people who spearheaded the anti slavery movement the abolitionist movement he was one of the earliest famous people involved in it. Yeah, that's another thing we tend to forget is that a lot of the founding fathers owned slaves. So it's just, I mean, life, liberty, and happiness. <laughs> yeah. I guess for not for Negroes at the time. No, and I get a kick out of things like on the John Adams miniseries <laughs> that uh, they imply that John Adams is all disappointed that we're still using slaves or they kind of, there's these, there's these weird subtle scenes where like the founding fathers and like look at their too. slaves and, and kind of give this sad look like they know it's mm-hmm. bad, but it's, you know, they have to do it or something. It's like they were one fifth of a human being back then, you know? 
Um, other, other obvious signs of Masonic influence in the United States. Um, if you go to Washington, D.C., it's pretty much all over the place. The city planner who was behind most of the architecture was a Freemason. And uh, the Washington Monument is an Egyptian obelisk. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a Masonic symbol. Yeah. The Egyptian symbolism in American culture comes from Freemasonry. What, what are some other symbols that we see that are Masonic? Other than uh, the pyramid. The main Masonic symbol that, that you'll see, you know, sometimes you'll enter a city, you'll see the Masonic emblem on a, on a, on a town sign. Um, it's a compass and a protractor on top of each other. The compass is on top pointing down and the protractor is underneath the compass pointing up. And inside the these two um, objects is a G. And Freemasons say that that stands for God and geometry. The great architect of the universe, as they sometimes call it. So it's almost like the first intelligent design kind, kind of, of perspective. yeah you know and intelligent design these days is means something completely different but back then yeah that was kind of a form of intelligent design mm-hmm. and other symbols that are that are not so obvious um if you if you look at washington from an aerial view you can actually see that the layout of washington dc the white house all the main buildings are arranged in a masonic logo um, really? Yeah, they actually form the compass and the protractor. Whoa! Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's it's so obvious. It's you know, it's not even up for debate if you look at a map of. of so it. no wonder there are so many conspiracies about Masons. I mean, it's so infiltrated. The symbolism's penetrated into our culture. Yeah, the symbolism has penetrated into our culture. Masonic ideals have penetrated mm-hmm. our culture to an extreme degree. Yet we're not taught in schools about anything about Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost as if. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why a lot of conspiracy theories exist because they're just like a lot of other organizations. They do everything in secrecy. Yeah. And they used to be a completely secretive organization. So going back to, to Masonic symbolism, why does it replicate Egyptian symbolism? I mean, why, why did they adopt so many symbols from Egypt? I think it comes down to the architecture that mm-hmm. they admired. What society can you point to that you know, was able to create such monolithic structures that we haven't been able to figure out how. Yeah. I mean, still as far as an organized civilized society, that's, that's been that accomplished with architecture. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians are probably the most prominent one. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. And I, I, there's probably more to it. Um, I don't know enough about why Masons worship Egyptian culture so much, but Another offshoot from the Freemasons, um, you were asking about the Shriners earlier. They're much more into the Egyptian symbolism of Masonry. They're a direct offshoot from Freemasonry. Then there's other organizations like the Rosicrucian, which are not direct offshoots from Freemasonry, but they're completely inspired by a Freemasonic um, ritual aesthetics. And they're all about the Egyptian iconography. They have a museum in San Jose where they actually have real mummies. Um, it's inside of an Egyptian temple replica. Um, it's if you if you get a Rosicrucian book, it's all about kind of recreating the Egyptian rituals and things like that. Really quickly, just give an overview of of where free you know where the Freemasonries began and the different offshoots now that exist from the main Freemasonic center. Okay, um, there's some really close offshoots, and there's also some offshoots that people in those organizations would completely deny that they're inspired by the Freemasons. I'll start with the ones that are direct offshoots. Direct offshoots of the Freemasons include the Shriners, Scottish Rite, organizations that were inspired by the Freemasons. Um, Rosicrucian is the main one that's most clearly linked to the Freemasons. Then there's three other ones that people within those organizations completely deny it. 
Mormonism is the main one. Joseph Smith was a Freemason and he stole, just like he stole a lot of other things from all, a lot of other religions. Yeah. He wrote the book of Mormon. He mm-hmm. was the guy that got the, you know, the magic colored glasses to read the plates and all that mm, other, the white stuff. salamander. Yeah. And all the, that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So he stole all these things from masonry, much to the chagrin of many masons. Actually, a lot of masons openly were angry at, for him for doing it. I mean, he stole the costumes. Um, if you're able, ever able to go inside of a Mormon church, which you probably never will be able to step foot Unless inside. Unless you're Mormon. Yeah. You will, you will see right off the bat, if you've seen any pictures of Masonic lodges, that it is a clear ripoff of masonry, mm-hmm. the aesthetics of masonry, the columns, the globe on top of the columns, the way that the inside of the temple look. They call them, they call it the Mormon temple. The costumes they wear, um, they wear the aprons. They look like Freemasons mm-hmm. when they're doing rituals. Um, it's more just an aesthetic ripoff mm-hmm. than it is like a belief system ripoff because the belief system of Mormonism is completely different yeah. than than uh, Freemasonry. Two other religions that are directly inspired by Freemasonry are the OTO, Aleister Crowley's, uh, you know, spiritual belief system. It's basically like a black magic spell casting thing kind of overlaid onto a Freemasonic style Mm. of belief. And I think there also some talk that Aleister Crowley was a Freemason. Mm -hmm. And then he also did what Joseph Smith did and, you know, went off and, and did all that stuff. Um, the, the final uh, organized religion that is inspired by Freemasonry is Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard was a Freemason, um, similar to Aleister Crowley and Joseph Smith. He stole a bunch of the rituals and a lot of the aesthetics from Freemasonry. Since Scientology is so secretive and so, you know, hard to actually go into like a Scientology church, it's, been difficult for people to, you know, prove a lot of this, but he was a Freemason as well. Wow. That's really, really interesting. So yeah, so many people have conspiratorial viewpoints on Freemasonry. They think that they're controlling the world. You know, a lot of presidents were Freemasons. The founding fathers were Freemasons, but I mean, it seems like it's just a, basically just a secretive men's club. Today it is more of a secretive men's club. Where, you know, people want to feel big and mm-hmm. want to feel important. They go to it. I'm sure there's some Masons nowadays who go to lodges who are power, very powerful people. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely different than what it used to be. Um, Freemasonry, before the formation of the Anti-Masonic Party, you know, it was just like a, a classic version of the Bilderbergs. You know, a secret group of people of the highest stature, mm-hmm. elitists, politicians, you know, business owners, generals, generals, police, judges. Mm-hmm. So that's where it stems from. Absolutely. And now it's just, you don't think that there's any real secrets or conspiracies being concocted at the top echelons of the free Masonic. Right. I mean, yeah. The Masonic, one of the a Masonic lodge in Italy called the P2 lodge, um, was discovered and, found out that members in it were actually conspiring to do false flag terrorist attacks to make it look like they were done by these like communist rebels, um, all over Europe. It wasn't just in Italy. So this is on, this is on record. I think the first person I read this from was Webster Tarpley and it's basically, it's on record. Um, so there's definitely still aspects of masonry that, you know, Freemasonry that are kind of still into that. Yeah. I mean, I think you're definitely right, but I, I, I think, even Webster Tarpley maybe talks about this a little bit. I, I could be completely making this up, but I I remember reading somewhere that the only 
Masonic lodges that still operate as an intelligence network are ones in foreign countries. Like in the United States, most of the Masonic lodges here are just kind of like historical, Mm -hmm. you know, traditional, you know, institutions, you know, you go, you do your, you know, you've got a pledge and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like just joining a really complicated old school fraternity. It's just funny how Masons act. They act so like they're just part of this, such an elitist club. It's just funny. Yeah, I mean, they can't is, talk about anything. I mean, women aren't allowed in It in is the, the most popular fraternity in the world. Yeah. So I'll give it that. That I mean, if, you, if you're if you a Mason, you travel to another country and you meet another Mason there, I'm sure, you know, you could get by and, and find some connections yeah. there. You know, maybe a free place to stay or something. But beyond that, I don't really think... There's just so much money in it. I mean, every every city that I go to, in like the most prominent area of the city, there's just a gigantic Masonic lodge. It's mm-hmm. just so rich, such a rich frat. And Masons make a big point these days. If you talk to a Mason and bring up the fact that you know there used to be a conspiracy of people working behind the scenes, they'll they'll make a very strong point to say, no, Masonic lodges are not connected in any way. We're all independently owned and operated. Hmm. You know, which is fine, but it's kind of like, you know, that's those protest too much. Yeah. You know, it's like a stock saying that you're supposed to say because of how many people who have brought this up to you. Right. Going along with with presidential figures and a lot of the presidents, I think what like half of them have been Masons up until this day. And so that's I think that's why the conspiracies still go on about just that same nefarious organization that, that existed at the formation of America. I think a lot of people still think that that's playing a role into politics and shrewdly guiding a lot of policy is just the power of the Masons. But do you think it's more just an elitist kind of just a status thing for presidents? Like, you know, I think that's what it is nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a way for someone like a president like FDR. I went into a lodge Masonic lodge in New York. The guy, the guy giving me the tour of the lodge proudly showed me a, a plaque that had a piece of cracked marble in the middle of it. And he said, do you know what this is? And I, and I said, no, what is that? And he said, this is where FDR kneeled when he took his third degree oath. He explained that it was cracked because FDR was wearing his polio mm-hmm. braces um, or his leg braces when he, you know, when he kneeled down on it. So I think it's just more of a, of a status thing now. I mean, things like the Bilderberg group, I mean, are clearly much more oh, influential. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like a globalist version of what right. the Freemasons used to be. Right. Um, it's, it's in my opinion, more policy more oriented and kind of for sure politically guided. Yeah. Um, so I just thought of something really funny. You have a, you have some catalog and I don't even know where you got it, but it's like this Masonic initiation catalog where in it, there's an, there's a ton of different ads for the initiation process of being a Mason. And one of them is an electric carpet ad. It's like, <laughs> It's like where you buy an electric carpet and make your your initiates go walk across and get electrocuted. And that was just one of the weird, bizarre ads in this catalog. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's such a ridi- I love this catalog. It's basically one of my favorite things that I found on the <laughs> How'd internet. How did you find it? Oh, you found it on the internet. There's a there's this um, website called Phoenix Masonry Museum, and they take pride in posting and cataloging just all these 
Masonic antiques, artifacts, catalogs, old books, posters. Um, and they have a huge archive of just JPEG rips of the, you know, this catalog. You can look at the entire thing in JPEG mm-hmm. format. Like half of the catalog is like, they, they must have been obsessed with electricity back then because half of the catalog <laughs> is about how to shock your initiate, how to trick them into getting shocked. They like, tell your initiate that they're walking across the river Styx and, and they must, to be, to be a man of the true order, they must walk across the da-da-da. And then like it shows like a guy on the picture like blindfolded like, getting shocked and all these like really proper looking like men in the background kind of like scratching their chin and like laughing at him. And there's one of like a collapsing staircase, like a fake punch bowl and just like all these frat fraternity like party tricks. Yeah, it's the, some of the most elaborate and expensive fraternity <laughs> party tricks I've ever seen. And the, the funny part about this catalog, it's called the DeMuth Fraternity Supply Catalog. And they also make a DeMuth Masonic Supply Catalog, which is just like the best looking like Masonic art you'll ever see. Just, it shows costume after costume, you know, different emblems, different Masonic embroidered furniture. And it's like a whole factory. Yeah. They they must have been like their, their building is just giant factory with like smokestacks (laughs) coming off. Like this is how popular Masons used to be in this country. There used to be a freaking factory making this stuff. I can't, the collapsing stairs is hilarious too. It's like reach the, reach the, it's like reach the highest degree. You know, you're tell your initiate, he's going to be reaching the highest degree and then collapse the staircase under him. And it shows like a guy like climbing up like two stories. And then like the staircase, like literally like flattens, like in a cartoon and they're falling down. Acme boxes, like falling yeah. like Wiley e. Coyote. I just picture like a big Masonic carnival of like initiates walking through like a maze, like <laughs> the collapsing staircases in one corner and then like the, the magic punch bowls in another corner. And then they just get like electrocuted. Oh, <laughs> that would be the best. I just thought of the again. best movie. Have you ever seen Road to Wellville? That one with Matthew Prado. It's like a Victorian medicine movie where like it's all about like going to these like health retreats where they do all this fake health stuff to you and like make you better. I mean, good if they did a movie all about like Masonic initiations and like you get like a guy gets hurt on like the staircase and stuff (laughs) (laughs) what about the different degrees though i mean what is is it kind of like scientology where you pay into it to get higher up or i mean how how does that work i mean what are the 33 degree mason as opposed to like a i I, honestly i don't know i think it's like karate belts i think yeah it's it's uh i have a friend who got his third degree and you know he's, he doesn't go to the meetings anymore. And he was just kind of like laughing at it, you know, saying like, I don't think this does anything, you know, like I don't, I just, I mean, you know, people talk about like getting to like the 99th degree or something. I don't really believe that Mason's would reveal anything too secretive and too important to anyone. Like Jesus' bloodline. (laughs) Yeah. Who just gets to the 33rd degree. I mean, There's so many people who are 33rd degree Masons. It mm-hmm. just gains you more seniority and respect within the organization. Mm-hmm. And it actually looks scary as hell. So like the little logo for the 33 degree like <laughs> looks like really creepy. It's like a two-headed eagle. Like looks like a Nazi symbol, like a two-headed eagle. So back to the occult stuff. I mean, there is there are hints of just like scary occultish things going on in the Masonic yeah. symbolism. And that symbolism has influenced American symbolism all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at like the Ameriprise logo. It is the pyramid with the all-seeing eye on top. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of different corporations that have assimilated the, the all-seeing eye and the pyramid. 
going back to what you said about new nefarious things that Freemasons have been involved in. Um, I just remembered a funny story, uh, that happened in Pechoga, New York in 2004 on March 14th. Um, a guy named William James was involved in a Masonic initiation ritual at a lodge there. And, uh, another Mason, Albert Ede, uh, was performing the ritual on him. He was going to pretend to shoot him, uh, with a 22 caliber pistol with blanks in it. Um, and another Mason was going to knock cans off of the wall behind William, uh, to make it seem like William had been shot, um, as like a test of his willpower or something like that. So what ended up happening in this ritual, as you can imagine, um, it sounds, you know, ripe for disaster. This guy um, accidentally pulled a 32 caliber handgun from his other pocket instead of the one with blanks. Um, this 32 caliber handgun was loaded and he shot uh, William James in the face, killing him instantly. And that sounds really sketchy. Yeah. Like and a they, game of they Russian roulette. They accidentally like, switched the pistols and they shot him. Oops. Yeah. Switched the pistols. So, I mean, you know, after this, you know, it looks like the DeMuth, um, company, you know, fraternity, rich, you know, ritualistic toys, you know, maybe they're not available anymore, but they try to use other tools <laughs> that they have at yeah. the time, like guns and blanks. And, and check like out that. our SoundCloud timeline. We'll definitely link up to some of these, uh, Masonic images from, from this catalog. But I think we're, we're running out of time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it about Freemasons. We'll link to a lot of, um, Freemasonic resources that we think are important to learn about here. Um, I think, I just think it's interesting to talk about, and it's definitely important to talk about since there's been so much revisionism in American history and there's so much talk thrown around about our founding fathers. And so it's just important to find out who they were and how they were Masons and what that really meant at the time and how, what it's dissolved into now. So it's just, it's really important to get an overview of, of the real foundation of our country. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to our fourth edition of Media Roots Radio. The timeline is interactive, so please go to our SoundCloud link and check out all the resources and music that we've um, linked to and played from the show. And please go to MediaRoots.org for more information. Thank you so much, you guys. Tune in next week. Thanks for listening, everybody.